0: From SocialService.SG, I'm Cooperative A Good Space, good friend to this podcast, ran two listening living labs and produced two corresponding listening reports to document the experiences and insights of migrant worker communities and low-income communities in Singapore. With Representative Nurhuda Hassan today, we focus on low-income communities, t- focused on the three issues and recommendations revolving around lower-wage gig workers, customized digital guidance, as well as interim assistance. No, the, the report started with the following, and I quote, what more can we do to change the odds for our low-income communities in the long-term, End quote. So maybe before we go into that and take the deep dive as we promised in the preview. Tell us a little bit more about how um, a good space put the report together. So more about the methodology for this particular report because we know both reports had slightly different approaches. So tell us more about the approach behind this report.
1: So for the Low Income Committees report, we did kind of a literature review of issues in, in the landscape for the Low Income Committees. So for a period of nine months from November 2020 to October 2021, we conducted this landscape research to gain a bit more of a nuanced understanding of the kind of key challenges faced by low income communities in Singapore. So, our literature review of a few social sector reports from organizations like NVPC, like Aware SG, and also a round of consultations with nine leaders from various sectors so, from the public, private, voluntary sector. We had consultations with leaders from the government agencies, from social service agencies businesses and even the community workers in ground up groups. This then helped point us to take a closer look at three kind of key issues. So the first issue is the inadequate protections for low-wage gig worker issue. The second one is the lack of customized digital guidance within the low-income community. And then finally, the challenges that families and individuals face with obtaining interim assistance. I guess... What I can say here is that this report actually really is only a starting point for us in the Listening Living Labs initiative. And what we hope to do now is to galvanize some sort of meaningful action for these issues to hopefully eradicate them in the longer run.
0: Yeah, and, and I don't think that diminishes it, right? In saying that it's a starting point. Mm-mm. It's important to understand, I guess, and appreciate that You or the team is really aware of the existing kind of reports out there and built upon a lot of this work that's already been done. And the three main kind of findings, as you have mentioned, revolves around gig workers, digital guidance, and low-income community, and also those who are obtaining interim assistance. So I was wondering, as with the last listening report, we could take the three key findings in turn before hearing some of the recommendations for each, right? So let's go with the first. The first concerns inadequate protection for gig workers over the lack of labor protection to income insecurity, which was worsened by the COVID-19 pandemic. So tell us a bit more about what is the current status quo with gig workers and what are some of the existing initiatives that engineered or kind of developed for gig workers?
1: Hmm. So the profile of gig workers that we were examining for this issue was that of the low-wage platform worker so this includes people who are very familiar to us, like essential workers like food and parcel delivery persons and private hire drivers. As these gig workers are classified as self-employed, we found that they typically receive much less wage and labour protections than workers who are in full-time traditional stable forms of employment. And then, so from there, we realised that they are actually not entitled to basic labour or wage protections, like the Workplace Injury Compensation Act, And they also don't receive CPF contributions as self-employed workers. So this actually becomes an even bigger issue when you consider that these workers don't have any means of harnessing collective bargaining power through union representation. So there was really no union organization looking out for them in terms of ensuring adequate uh, wage or labor protections for these workers. Although there are associations like the National Delivery Champions Association, started by NTUC, which helps to ensure that delivery riders have access to sufficient insurance coverage, beyond that, there's really no kind of third-party channel for these workers to go through and to voice their concerns over wages or labour conditions in the industry. And then also, uh, additionally, over that, there's also this high influx of new workers right, who have since joined the gig economy over the period of the COVID-19 pandemic. And this now means that these workers are facing much more increased competition for work and income insecurity because the amount of money that they can bring home really depends on the number of gigs they can get on any given day. So gig workers were now reporting earning much less than before, despite them working even the same number of hours or even longer just to make ends meet. So despite this precarious nature of low wage gig work, we found that A lot of these workers actually came from low income households where their finances were already in a quite vulnerable state. And then we wanted to find out what was actually motivating them to join the gig economy, despite this very real risk of income insecurity. So what we found was that for many of them, we realized that it's not so much a matter of personal choice, but rather this lack of viable options that have forced them to become gig workers. They might not have formal educational or professional qualifications to secure stable employment elsewhere. And then for parents and caregivers in low-income households, they cannot afford to outsource their caregiving responsibilities. They have to kind of work around their caregiving schedules. And then, so gig work becomes a suitable option because they get more control, essentially, over their working hours. And then looking at the other side of the equation. So for workers who tried to transition out of the gig economy It's also challenging for them because there are several barriers to transitioning out. So despite the number of upskilling courses now being heavily subsidized by the government, there still exists a lot of barriers for them, a lot of barriers to access that make upskilling very difficult for low-wage gig workers. So we found factors like irregular working hours of the gig worker clashing with these courses. Or they also faced a lot of income loss from the time spent upskilling, and it's not subsidized or reimbursed by their employers. So it's really like a multitude of factors that come into play when you take a look at the kind of challenges that low wage gig workers face. So if we look at the existing initiatives for, for these issues, right, there are a number of great efforts like the new advisory committee for platform workers that was recently formed. This looks at how they can possibly resolve some of these issues and provide better protections for gig workers in Singapore. And then there's also Alliance for Action, Work Group and Work Fair, who are also looking into measures that can possibly help to improve the wages of uh, low-wage workers and make upskilling more accessible for them. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of hope for these issues in the future.
0: It's interesting because what I'm hearing is that under this broad umbrella of Inadequate protections for gig workers, the intersection of different problems, right? Wage conditions, Mm. labor conditions, the fact that you mentioned as well that many of them also come from lower income backgrounds as well. You know, of course, research is very scant. There is some emerging research from the Social Work Department and U.S. about that question you raised about why would these individuals be involved in gig work if they know that there's downsides to it and they're not thinking mm. of long term? One of which is that very easy to cash out, for instance, right? Like if you're working a regular job, for instance, you have to wait to the end of the month before you're paid. Whereas if you do gig work, you seem to have a bit more control over when you get payouts and where you get the mm. money in that sense. And I'm pretty sure that's something that came up in your discussion too. So, and so, having said that, what are some of the recommendations based on some of the findings that you've articulated around gig workers in Singapore?
1: Hmm. So, based on the kind of findings we saw, two main points came up for us. The first is that we might need to kind of reimagine what inclusion and a socially just model of employment might look like for a low-wage worker. So, to kind of illustrate this point, we can ask the question like, are existing workplace arrangements considerate towards the needs of a working caregiver from a low-income household, for example? What if we moved away from looking at these flexible work arrangements as a perk or as a privilege, And we began looking at this as a necessity across all workplaces. And then the second point that we found was we might need to actually examine our own assumptions about the accessibility of upskilling programs. So do the current upskilling programs actually help with job seeking and transition efforts? Especially when we look at the challenges that low wage gig workers face, right? When they try to transition out of the gig economy and move into more secure, stable jobs. And then other than looking at the kind of cost or, or the financial side of these upskilling courses, what else might be hindering a low wage gig worker from upskilling and how can we then improve the accessibility of these programs beyond just looking at the financial side of it so that those who can really benefit from it are able to take up these opportunities.
0: And that's so that's that the first issue focused on gig workers, and we talked about and you shared some of the recommendations. The second big finding from the listening report, based on the listening labs, was lack of customized digital guidance with reference Mm. to device ownership, internet access, and digital literacy. So, what are some of the key highlights from this section of the report focused on digital guidance, especially amongst low income communities?
1: So we found that in low-income households, they experienced the digital divide across three main areas. So the first of which is the challenges cited with regards to device ownership. And one example of these challenges cited in the report is that while there are subsidies available for low-income households, some of them were unaware that they were eligible for these schemes or even found this process to apply and obtain a laptop to the schemes challenging. And then there's the second issue to do with internet access. So for a low-income household, home Wi-Fi subscription can be quite pricey for them. And while there are also subsidies in this area, again, some families cited feeling either discouraged by the stringent criteria for application or they found that they were actually ineligible for these subsidies altogether. And then lastly, digital literacy. We found that this issue persists not only for students using computers at school, which is traditionally the way we think about digital literacy, right? But also for adults and seniors. So When you look at adults in low-income households who are primarily reliant on smartphones, they often face difficulties navigating online services like filling digital forms. And then for the senior side, those who had difficulties understanding their mobile data plans, sometimes they might unknowingly exceed data limits. And then um, from there, they rack up very high monthly bills, for example. (laughs)
0: Yeah, and, and I really like the way you framed it in, in the report. It comes through mm-hmm. very well, which is those three things are not, you, you cannot do without one of each, right? So for instance, mm-hmm. when you talk about seniors, for instance, you can give them a device, you can give them internet access, but if they don't understand how to use it and how to monitor or whatsoever, then data limit exceeding a data limit becomes a problem. For the kids as well, like they're very savvy, but if they mm-hmm. don't have a stable connection, then home-based learning is not a possibility for them, right? They have the device, but what if the device is mm. shared with a few other siblings and so on and so forth? And so I like the way it was framed that it's not either or, it's we need all these three components in place for digital guidance, right? So mm. based on that, while some of the insights you've got you you've, that the team gathered from the public, private, business, and voluntary sectors about this particular issue?
1: So through our conversations with the representatives from the voluntary sectors, we found that these people who work very closely with rental flat communities, right, these volunteers, we found that in some rental estates, they're actually not equipped with fiber optic points. So Wi-Fi installation for these estates is a lot more difficult for these residents. And although there is a free Wi-Fi service, public Wi-Fi service provided by wireless SG, it's also only an accessible option during certain hours when these places are open, like those cafes and malls that you go to to, to connect to wireless SG. And additionally, the public spaces like cafes and malls might not be the most conducive environments when you look at those who rely on public Wi-Fi to work or study And then another key insight that came up from our conversations with folks from these diverse sectors, it gave us a a whole new way of looking and understanding digital literacy beyond just our understanding that digital literacy equates to basic skills or learning a basic computer skill. So for children in low-income households, they often don't actually have a parental figure at home to go to for guidance on how to use these computers or digital devices to meet their own unique goals and aspirations. And then this kind of led us to realize that our understanding of digital literacy is quite introductory, and there's actually a lot of potential to look deeper and tap into this potentially capability-building side of digital literacy. And in the long run, maybe if these children are equipped with the skills to realize their personal aspirations through the use of digital devices, maybe they learn how to take up a new course or a skill of their interest online that's not traditionally available in their schools... Digital literacy has even the power to become transformative and can can even contribute towards helping a family eventually break out of the poverty cycle.
0: I I mean, I, I cannot agree more with that. And I, and I think mm. the point made about how when we say digital literacy, it's not just enough to say we want more of it, but as the report specifies, it's important to detail what exactly is entailed by digital literacy, right? Because then then also falls upon educators and folks who are working with low-income communities to actually imbue individuals' with these skills, right? Rather than talking about it generically, right? And that's something that I think the report adds to the current conversation a lot. So we talked about, so far, gig workers and then digital literacy, right? The last... The third and last issue concerns challenges uh, challenges with obtaining interim assistance. And in the report, these challenges include those related to accessibility, so getting and obtaining the assistance, as well as delivery and coverage of social assistance, which is how comprehensive the assistance might be. So what are some initiatives the team has identified or identified in the listening report?
1: We found that MSF was doing a lot in this area to improve accessibility of social assistance and also the delivery and coverage of social assistance. So we saw initiatives like Comlink, like Case Connect, like the SG CARES community networks. These are really good initiatives that started by MSF to help to strengthen the coordination and overall delivery of these schemes. There's also volunteer run kind of tech for good websites like schemes.sg, for example, that acts as a resource platform to help connect those in need to the most relevant assistance schemes quickly. And then in terms of looking at improving the coverage for the needs that might not be covered by social assistance, we found initiatives like mutual aid platforms that help to provide urgent and interim financial assistance and also emergency fund initiatives like those launched by One Singapore and Mind the Gap. This also helps to fill certain gaps in requests for assistance.
0: So knowing that, right, so you've helped us lay out the landscape of these different initiatives. So having known that or having established that these are the ones that are available, of the range of recommendations proposed in the report itself, which do you think were the most or are the most salient and important that in a way should be prioritized and kind of talked about a little bit more first?
1: So because there are, a lot of these issues are actually interconnected and we found that they're very dependent on a variety of different stakeholders' responses to resolve. I wouldn't say there's one particular salient or important recommendation over the others. For this issue of challenges with obtaining interim assistance, there are two points that we found quite con- important to consider and to ask ourselves. So the first of which is to look at how we can better identify where there are certain gaps not currently covered by social assistance such as requests for help in managing issues like chronic debt, for example. There's also the question of social and mental well-being. So how are the social emotional needs of low-income households being cared for currently by social assistance? Social inclusion is a basic human need and it's not a need that's purely financial in nature. And the second point then is also how we can better support voluntary initiatives who are helping to bridge these gaps. So we found that Over the pandemic period, especially, they have helped a lot in kind of filling these gaps in assistance for low-income communities in complementing the formal channels of social assistance. But we also found that ground-up efforts like this, they they face their own unique challenges. So sometimes they might be limited in their resources to provide aid. They might also be a bit more vulnerable to experiencing considerable strain and burnout of resources if there's no kind of proper due diligence structure being implemented. So our question here is How might we maybe help them To circumvent some of these barriers To providing aid So that we can Provide better assistance And then ensure that No one falls through the cracks
0: And so far And I'm coming to my last question But so far okay. You've helped us look at The report itself And you have helped us understand facets of the um, Different facets of the report The three main issues I kind not want to turn to you Because I, as I did in the last episode I want to ask about Your experience of Working on this report Right so Over the last nine months of working on the report, talking about it, discussing with stakeholders, what was, in your opinion or from your experience, the most important insight or lesson you've gained from this nine-month experience at EGS working on this report?
1: So I think the most kind of revealing lesson for me, I took away from this whole experience, uh, looking at all the different perspectives that come into play for these issues, Essentially, there are so many different, multiple perspectives and, and so many lenses and ways of approaching a single issue. And there's a lot of good work being done, like organizations, individuals, volunteers doing amazing work to help people, to help make life better for low income communities. But yet, despite all these kind of initiatives started by, by organizations, by individuals, this issue still persists despite everyone's best effort. So I feel like for me, What I gained from this was that maybe what we need now is a kind of deeper level of understanding and a closer listening to to the ground, to the people who are facing these issues themselves, to the low-income communities. So instead of pushing for more initiatives or or, um, bigger initiatives, maybe what we need now is to ground these solutions to these various issues, to the kind of aspirations and the concerns for the future that the community itself has maybe we can start to really question then and examine some of our assumptions about these issues. Because I know from the start, when I came into this, I didn't realize that there were certain nuances that I didn't even recognize at the start, like the digital divide issue and how transformative that can be for a family trying to break out of the poverty cycle. Maybe in this way, if we really listen to the ground, if we do the, the work of really investing in listening to the community themselves, we can maybe... Learn how to effectively work towards eradicating these issues in the long run. Yeah,
0: and I agree because there's there have been discursive advances in the way we talked about in the way we talk about poverty, poverty and inequality in Singapore in general. I mean, there's mm-hmm. been some advances, but I think what you, the team, and the report does is to pass these issues in in, in greater detail, right? So rather than talk about inequality and poverty in the general sense, you diving a bit deeper into particular issues and looking into these issues in greater detail. Of course, as you mentioned at the start, it's a starting point, but it's an important starting point for, as you mentioned, better understanding, better listening. And hopefully this is one of many efforts that will continue to come, not just discussing the issues, but actually surfacing these recommendations for policymakers, for agencies, and for those who do work with low-income communities. Right. Mm-hmm. and. On that note, thank you for your work. Thank you for being with us today and um, all the best with um, whatever endeavors and initiatives you have in the future. Thank you very much, Nuru.
1: Thank you so much for having me.